Welcome to the Exposing Mold podcast, where I, Keely Severson, Eric Johnson, and Alicia Swamy dive into all things toxic mold. Today, we have a very special guest, attorney Robert McKee. Robert McKee is an expert environmental injury litigator and partner of the McKee Law Group in Florida. He obtained his Bachelor of Science degree in Agricultural Science with highest honors from the University of Florida. Prior to commencing his legal career, he developed enterprises as a South Florida landscaper. Enraged by injustice, Robert enrolled in law school at St. Thomas University School of Law, from which he graduated with honors while being a law review member. In 1993, Robert became an associate of another law firm. His unique background in agricultural science put him as an integral part in the firm's litigation by representing hundreds of farmers against IE DuPont, Dinoirs, and company. Robert specializes in toxic torts, agriculture, environmental, commercial, and complex products liability litigation. He handles toxic exposure and contamination cases throughout the United States, Latin America, and the Caribbean. Robert has litigated against many of the world's largest companies, including DuPont, Novartis, Exxon, and BP. Among other recognitions, Robert has been certified as one of the top 100 trial lawyers by the National Trial Lawyers in 2012, is one of the best lawyers in America in 2008, and is one of South Florida's top lawyers in 2010 and 2011, rated by Martindale Hubble for practicing law with the highest level of legal ability and ethics. Wow, Robert, you sound so fancy on paper. I love that we have you here. Last but not least, Robert won one of the largest single plaintiff mold contamination cases nationwide. The damage awarded included 10 million for expected future medical expenses, more than 1.2 million for past and future lost earnings, and 35 million for loss of capacity to enjoy life. I know that as we've all suffered with mold injury, we can understand the costs associated with that. And Eric, I know that you had a question for attorney McKee. Yes, my uh, question is that Dr. Richie Shoemaker's SIRS chronic inflammatory response syndrome entity was primarily predicated on the detection and health effects of toxic mold at the time this um, case was determined, how will it affect things in the future now that Dr. Shoemaker has said that mycotoxins constitute less than 7% of the gene activations in SIRS? Well, as you can well imagine, and thank you for having me, by the way, and, and to cut to the chase on that very long welcoming, I'm a farmer first, a lawyer second, for victims only for my entire 30-year career. And I try to make science simple for the court and for juries. And so that question, though based in technicality, I cut it off as a very simple concept. Number one, one spokesperson in the science realm doesn't change what I do in a courtroom. What I try to do is say, okay, but so long as it works in concert with other factors, both of the human genome, of the various bodily systems, including the immune system, which is being regulated by it, and by other things to which a person may ex be exposed before, during, and after the mold exposure, so long as I can prove that with the preponderance of the evidence, the greater weight of the evidence, so long as I can prove that, the defense has to prove that other causes were the primary cause and deduct from it. 
they never do because they never want to admit that any of this is real. So it's not so difficult in a courtroom to deal with changing science so long as you're dealing with science that can be understood. Now, I, I, if, if I may, before any next question occurs, I, I'd like to discuss, if I may, my perspective on this field, because I find incredible frustration, even anger and angst from those who have been made ill by mold exposure. And apart from getting no response from their landlords or from their employers or from insurance companies, they can't even find a lawyer half the time willing to do the case. And I can tell you my interpretation of why that is. First of all, as my original senior mentoring partner told me, you don't have to be smart to be a plaintiff's lawyer. The smart ones are defense lawyers. <laughs> you have to be aggressive, attentive, and be willing to learn. Well, unfortunately, many successful plaintiff's lawyers are really good at a particular area and don't want to branch out into a new one. They're already successful. They don't need to work so hard for cases that have two cases in them. We not only have to win the sick person's case, but then we have to find a way to collect it. And with mold and pollution exclusions, oftentimes the insurers even leave their insurance without defense, which is what happened in the Gibbon case, which I just won. They said they weren't gonna cover it when there was a clear exception to the mold exclusion. And so as a lawyer thinking of taking a client's case, I have to say, can I win the case? And then can I win a way to collect it? And there are ways to do that, that if you haven't gone through the trials and tribulations of getting there, you may simply put your hands up in the air and say, I can't represent you, find someone competent. And there aren't many. There are a lot of good lawyers, but not very competent in this area, is my finding. The um, immune effects of macrocyclic trichrophacine mycotoxins is extremely well documented it's known that exposure to stachybotrys will affect T cell and uh, decrease natural killer cell function. So is it possible? I mean, can you get this through to a judge and jury at this point? You can, and we're really helped by COVID. You know, everyone finds negatives of COVID. Of course, it's a serious issue killing millions of people. But I've found a lot of positives, especially in our now, our, our court system. What's the world that every human being has ventured into in the past 14 months? being enclosed in a bubble, restricted in their, their ability to, to be with others, restricted in their ability to work, worried about catching something and dying from it. All I have to do is segue into how our immune system is leading to the worst outcomes there and put it into another microbe called fungi. And I've made sense to just about every juror and judge in the world. The fact of the matter is I also just touched on every aspect of the most valuable part of a case, which is the non-economic damages, the effect of pain, suffering, anxiety, depression, isolation, so on and so forth. That's the real value in a human life. And so now we get to have people, every one of them, the judge and the jury, hey, I experienced that. But guess what I get to tell them, as I did in Jivity? There is no immunization. There is no herd immunity. It is everywhere as opposed to just in people. And it's probably not curable, unfortunately, currently. So when they hear that, they say, big value. And the only question is, once I've convinced them of that, how do I collect it for the victim? But you get around the science by using bits and pieces. I don't need all those scientific words. I say, Dr. 
McMahon, isn't it true that the Khmer Rouge used refined trichothecene as part of the nerve agents to kill their own people back in the 80s? Uh, that makes sense to people. I don't have to get into all this other stuff unless I'm being challenged legally on whether that man can testify. And then I let him do that work of carrying it into not new diagnoses, but existing methods of defining illness through the immune system uh, not functioning properly. That's been studied for decades. And new things come up like the cytokine storm and the reasons for that. And we can get there almost all the time. I've always said an expert gets disqualified, not because of his own incompetence, but because of his naivety and not having a good trial lawyer, making sure he's uh, well prepared for what's going to happen to him. So we can get there for most people so long as we have the evidence. And that's one of the things I'd love to talk about. What does someone who's been significantly injured need to move forward improving their case? But I'll take any question first before I move there. Well, if somebody has been made sick and points at a certain building, but not everyone is sick, how do they demonstrate that it was that building and not other exposures or their genetic problems? Well, in the court of law, it's pretty straightforward. And I start with, get me some evidence. First of all, get me an environmental test that shows that the conditions there are abnormal. Water intrusion, elevated relative humidity, visible mold growth if possible, but not necessary, but certainly aerosolized spores that are abnormal compared to outside, both in quantity and species. I have that, I now have a potentially harmful environment. And then how long is a person in that building compared to the other buildings? Does this person have a genetic factor that makes them more susceptible? That's done by testing. So I've got environmental tests, I've got genetic testing if possible. Let's do some urine and blood tests for mycotoxins in their system. Defense says, well, we all have that. Well, not at that level. We all have some because metabolizing, growing microbes are everywhere. And so we all have a little bit. And that's why there are standards of what the typical human has in them. But when I see two, three, seven times greater than normal, I now have environmental source, the mycotoxins that are excreted from that known environmental source in the microbes in that person. So I now have also, the spores that are in the air, every breath the person takes is contaminated. And it only takes one fragment or spore to cause an immune response. Just one. And when there are thousands per meter cubed, every breath you're taking is bringing in something that your body's immune system now must fight. That's just a fact of our, our bodies. And so now I have harmful element, exposure, Proof of the exposure based on symptoms and objective testing, the mycotoxin panels, and hopefully an allergy test showing that they're abnormally responsive to those particular fungi like aspergillus, penicillium, stachybotrys, so on and so forth. So now I have what I need in, in the law, a known harmful substance that has been exposed to my client who brought it into his or her body by inhalation, physical touch, through the eyes, and an expert who says, since they're invisible and in the air, every breath you take, every movement you make, every time you jostle your furniture or step on your carpet, you're putting them into the air even more, and you're being exposed. So now I have potentially harmful exposure. Next step, symptoms and those tests that show there's abnormal symptomology. 
abnormal response, meaning if it's mast cell activation, all kinds of histamine responses, which by the way, is a normal response. You're supposed to be getting all kinds of fluids to blow these things out of your nose and your throat. And that's why we have running noses and, and sinuses that are going kind of berserk with the initial onslaught of something. And then we might even get a fever, which is supposed to kill these things. But as was explained by Dr. McMahon, Dr. Shoemaker and others with SIRS, if you have a certain genetic factor, that cytokine mediated re response, normal, becomes abnormal when the cells that are supposed to be excreting chemicals to now calm it down, stop doing it. Now you just have a constant onslaught with a now defectively behaving immune system. I don't think I just spoke a bunch of one boat jumbo, even though you're all with your own mold experiences. The fact is everyone remembers having a bad response to something and how their bodies felt. I was just in three buildings yesterday. I'm slightly mold sensitive. I was dizzy, nauseous, felt like fainting once, and I wasn't there for an hour. These people are living here. And so the reality is those who have these exposures, and it can even include our opponents to these cases, understand that much. The next more difficult step is how that becomes a life-threatening, life-altering illness. And those in immunology can explain that very well. So it's a process and it takes evidence. So if I'm a mold injured person, I'm saying, and I'm saying my life is miserable. My kids' lives are miserable. It's never going away from me. What do I do? Well, number one, try and get out of the place. A lot of people have a problem with that. They have to break a lease that the landlord is saying no to, keeping their deposits and don't have the funds to move elsewhere. Meanwhile, do they move their possessions, which are all con contaminated? They have to buy more? And oh, by the way, if you throw it away, you just destroyed evidence. It's a big problem for, for anyone faced with a massive problem. But my first recommendation is get out. Get out if you can. Go live at a friend's house. Go get a pod and put your furniture there until someone can inspect it. Uh, don't bring it with you. Live on someone else's bed. Go elsewhere. That's number one. If they don't, I know I'm going to have a problem. The defense is going to say, you help cause your own problem. It's called comparative fault. I don't want comparative fault. I want as clean a case as possible. But some people can do nothing else but stay where they are and endure. It's bad for them, but I tell them that. That's step number one. Step number two, make sure to document things. You know, we all forget we have this wonderful thing in our hands that in my earlier days didn't exist, but it's got a camera and a way to document things. So you can send a photo to your landlord on an email. It just became evidence that they don't do anything for you. I sent it in May last year. They still haven't come out. I sent it three weeks ago. They still haven't contact. And you document that too. I sent you this photo and my mold problem, and you're still not here. Guess what you're doing for me, your lawyer or your future lawyer? You're telling them you're going to get gross negligence on them. That's punitive damages in Florida. And so not only do you have the actual losses, then you have the willful, wanton misconduct that gets a jury to say, we're going to punish you for that. And if I have that evidence, that goes into the pleadings too. So now you're making sure your circumstances are documented. Document them with photos. Document them with emails. Know that everything you write may be, will be evidence in your case if you do one. And then if you can't get them to do the testing, you're going to have to come out of pocket with $600 to $1,500 to do the environmental test. Without it, you'll almost never get a lawyer to do it. Even I won't do it 
and I'm successful on these. I call it the client's investment in their own case. If they're not willing to at least do that, they really don't want me to do anything for them. Could I pay for it? Yes, I'm not. That's called client investment. And it's not much money, but it's important. And it needs to be done contemporaneously because all of us who do this, all of us who have been victims and done this evidence know that the report says it's only as to the day that the inspection was made. Well, it doesn't do you much good if you already moved out and three months have passed. It's not what you were exposed to. So you need to do it contemporaneous with your presence there. And then you take that report when you get it back in a week or two, and you go to an allergist, immunologist, hopefully with health care, if you have insurance. And if not, you got to make an appointment and go to get at least the next piece of evidence that tells a lawyer you're serious and you're real. An abnormal mold report and someone who just did testing on you for allergy to those very molds. And if that comes back elevated, above normal, uh, a three to five rather than a one to two compared to histamine response, you now have direct causal proof of bodily injury. It may be the lowest level of proof, meaning allergy symptoms don't get a lot of award. At best, it's a five-figure dollar case, unless it becomes sinus problems with sinus surgery. Now you're up at the high end of five figures to low six figures with sinus surgery, which is very uncomfortable. I'm sure anyone who's had a COVID swab says that was really miserable for the instant that they did it. Now just imagine scraping out all of your sinuses, how miserable that is. And almost every person nowadays has had one of those and those they didn't really want that thing jammed up practically to their brain. And that's what it's like. And, and so everyone's kind of been experiencing those things. But that gets us to the point that we now have proof that likely would get you to a jury. And then hopefully you're not the kind of person that has had so much exposure over such a long period that your entire systems are shutting down. And we know that our immune system can affect everybody's system such that our brains, our gut function, all of these things, our heart, all of them can be harmfully affected by our immune system response and the chemistry that's going on. Apart from the microbials that make up our immune system function, how they're being affected too. Sometimes, I joke, we sometimes forget or don't perceive. We are mainly microbe with a human body attached. About 70% of our cellular matter is made up by quantity of bacteria. And about 30 to 35% is made up of somatic cells, human cells. And so which are we, human or microbe? And those microbes make us really successful. They modulate much of what we do biologically. So we have to keep them happy. Guess where they aren't really happy? Intrusions into their system, and they help the immune system fight those off. So between what we're eating and what we're doing to eliminate exposures to the things that harm us, make for much of a successful recovery if we can. But on a legal scenario, you need to have the proof available. Lawyers don't make the proof. They collect it and then use it. And so many lawyers turn down these cases, even though probably competent to do them, because they don't know even what to ask for, because they don't do these cases. But it's really simple. Environmental test and at least one doctor who's seen the test in the environment, done the testing to see if there's a response and says, your environment is probably causing or contributing to this. With that, a lawyer knows he probably won't lose on whatever he's doing. 
And since many of these cases come against landlords with contracts that have prevailing attorney's fees, winning a dollar means you prevail. And the attorney's fees can be more valuable than the case. But guess what? In my case, my attorney's fees, though awarded as a part of the case, is an owned asset of my client. I get paid a fee from my fees that I earn for them. So they can recover even if most of the work is attorney value. But lawyers don't realize these things if they don't do them all the time. So that's really the path forward, creating by bona fide effort of environmental testing and doctor workup. And with that, you bring that to the lawyer. You don't go to the lawyer, I feel like really bad. I curse sometimes, so I have to catch myself. I feel really bad. Can you help me? You're going to get no about 100% of the time. You have to bring them evidence. And when you've done it, they know that you're invested in making yourself well and helping them learn what to do. Okay, you brought up a really controversial topic here, and that is the one spore theory. Now, we know that when the immune system is shutting down in a hypersensitized person, that an extremely low level, a microscopic amount of the substance is capable of setting off a cytokine cascade. This ripples through the immune system in a sequential activation of innate inflammatory elements where the immune response itself is the actual driving force in the illness, not the amount of toxin. And really, it's, it's immaterial at that point. Once you trip the cytokine cascade, it's the immune response that counts. But there are many top mold experts that say, well, this is anecdotal. It's unproven. You have no evidence. What would you say to them? Well, I hope you're bee allergic. Let's go out next to a beehive and see how many bees it takes to kill you, sir. That's what I would say. Immune response only takes a single shot. And anyone that's anaphylactically exposed to bees will let you know. But by the way, your immune system didn't kill you. You just stopped breathing. Uh, it's called anoxia. And so, yes, they can say that all they want, but that's kind of like what you have to oppose them with in a courtroom. I had a, I had a doctor, he called me doctor all the time when he was working for the opposition. And he, he did this whole thing that objective finding is the only way you can give a valid opinion on medical causation. I said, really? Uh, you just spent two hours going over that with the jury. So I have a question for you, doctor. Show me the machine that shows that a headache is happening. Silence and then a kind of funny smile. And he said, Dr. McKee, you know perfectly well that there is no such machine. Then why don't you tell the jury headaches don't exist? And I just sat down. That's all I needed to do with him. So there are certain positions that are taken in litigation that can be shot full of holes. The reality is this. You've hit on a critical thing for lawyers and clients to understand in presenting a case. Don't go to toxicology. Now, we have chemical elements here, mycotoxins that might cause cancer in the future with latency periods and whatnot, and maybe some sort of trigger to the genetic release of chemical factors through the cells. But if I put this all in the basket of toxicity, now I have the scientific requirement of dose and effect. Texas has a law that says you have to have at least two epidemiological reports using the same compounds at the same rates you to even get into the courtroom on a toxic tort case. Don't have that here, thank God. But that's why I don't plead this as a primarily chemical exposure regimen of effect. The immune system, like gamma and alpha radiation, it takes only a single particle to effectuate what you're trying to accomplish. One broken chromosome in the right place in a, a single cell can cause cancer. Just like with the immune system, one foreigner 
because that's why it's there, one foreigner triggers immune system response. And if you're unfortunately with having had worn out your immune system by the amount of onslaught you're getting and have perhaps the genetic predisposition. I can't imagine a single immunologist that wouldn't agree with me that very dire consequences can ensue based on 25 years of medical testing and, and scientific effort. So I, I go for the absurdities of, of our, my opponents when they say certain things. And so doctor, what you're telling the judge and the jury, a single beasting doesn't kill people. They can't say, and as soon as they say, well, of course, I'm not saying that, then you just told us a bunch of BS. And, and it works in a court system. At least it works for me. And so I, I try to learn all the different ways that single events can cause harm. You better have your little notepad available to run through them with the experts because there's a lot of that history. Well, that's not science. Yeah, that's like saying there's no science to support that COVID kills anyone because there isn't. So how do we have these tens of millions of people dying around the world? from COVID or is it just a fraud? You know, they can't go there without being absurd. And so if they want double blind studies on everything, we'd never get anything into a courtroom until a decade or two after the events. As a matter of fact, if we needed double blind studies, we wouldn't have a vaccine for COVID right now. And whether you're for vaccines or not, and I personally am not, but one thing's for sure, they never get released if they were requiring double blind studies to enough cohorts to make a difference in knowledge. And so science doesn't require it, government action doesn't require it. And if you know how to use the judicial system, it doesn't require it either. You just have to know what to plead and where to go with it. I have to say that I am absolutely stunned at the depth of your knowledge. You brought up another controversial topic and up till now, the inflammatory responses and the uh, identification of mold illness is predicated on only inflammatory responses and not the converse the shutdown of the immune system, the lack of immune system function, where we know that molds are potent immunological suppressors. And just as you said a moment ago, alpha particles don't actually stimulate the immune system. They derail it. The alpha particle shuts off the DNA that contrives an appropriate immune response. And Dr. William Croft in his uh, 1986 treatise on trichothecine mycotoxins stated that stachybotrys was radiomimetic. It had the same effect, just as alpha particles would, of shutting off the immune system. And you're the first person I've ever seen who made direct reference to that. Well, I've done so much of so many different types of exposure cases, I have to constantly read. I, I always say, I should have about 14 PhDs by now. I, I don't get one, but I'm still just a dumb lawyer, but the, the reality is I have to study to keep up with the kinds of clients that come. I mean, I, I'm not a conspiracist, but I'm very disturbed by mass vaccination during a pandemic, which is causing escape variants while we just put out 5G. Uh, 5G is elevated energy into the environment. Does it have an immunologic effect? I've got a paper right here. Put out by the US Navy in 1971. All the studies, front and back, all the studies of the harmful effects to biology by 5G. And yet our government didn't even require the 5G purveyors uh, setting up all this network nationwide and worldwide and out in space on its effect on our immune systems, on our, our mental processes. And I, I just, I'm very concerned about our path forward without being conspiratorial. My point being, we have so many 
things that are salt our immune system. We have a thing called the, it's an egg theory. Eggs break when they fall. All you have to do is push it over to make it fall. The defendant is liable for that. So long as I'm talking about the, the straw that broke the camel's back, the straw, the assault that pushed the immune system over to a cascade of bad things, with all of those other things we're exposed to, because they had it before and then they have the mold and then it goes haywire, that gives me my straw. And if I keep it simple like that with simple stories, same with, like you say, cutting it off, you can make very easy visible effect. And I would do it to you if you were in front of me, I'd grab you by the throat. Can you breathe? Yes. Let me squeeze a little harder. That's called an additional assault. Can you still breathe? Well, not so good. How about now when I cut off your windpipe? I'm suffocating, tap me out, let go of me. Because the next step is unconsciousness, a bad cascade of things called death. And so the reality is when you can find ways that shut it down, you're on the path to discovering why someone's so miserable. And so you just need that support from the testing that has to happen. That can be expensive, oftentimes not covered by insurance. And so sometimes we'll hire an expert to actually do those tests. In Florida, I'm not allowed to pay for the medical care of my clients by state law. So we have to find ways through experts and whatnot. Other states allow it, like Louisiana. But you have to have this evidence developed. You can't just sit at home, feel miserable, and wish you had a lawyer. It doesn't work. You have to be proactive. And the smartest clients I've ever had in my life are mold victims. They have worked to study it, like you. I can tell you right now, all of you, you sound like most of my clients. I wish I was as smart as you guys, but you give me the pathways to start studying, to learn, to put it into plain English. It is notable that our mold experts, doctors, our institutes right now, are not looking for evidence of immune escape from COVID-19 in moldy buildings. We know that mold is immune suppressive. If any place is likely to generate variants, this would be the place to look. Why aren't they looking? Well, I can tell you right now with the letters I've written to our former president and my current governor, <laughs> cigarette smoking. I would love to see how many of the COVID deaths relate to people that previously smoked. I'll bet you it's a very large proportion. Immunocompromise is, is the leading culprit for the worst outcome with COVID, just as with mold. If you're gonna expose yourself to crap intentionally, bad things are gonna happen. And cigarette smoking is amongst the worst. Kills far more people and makes far more people ill than COVID ever has every year. 26 million sick Americans, 480,000 dead Americans, 7 million dead other Europeans from our tobacco industry every year. And they don't do anything about it. Actually, they make taxes on it. So the reality is though, without getting political here, there are lots of things that can make us ill, not mainly by being a toxicant, but by being a trigger to bad effects from the immune system. And if you teach a jury, you teach your doctors, you have them investigate that, the immune system is the answer of getting this case in front of a jury because it's been studied for so long. I don't need some, I don't need SIRS as a diagnosis. I just need an, an inflamed immune system, period. Do you have some tests that can show that that's happening? Amen. Are those tests accepted in your field? Yes, amen. I'm there, I'm to a jury now. And so the only question is, is it permanent? Can I prove it's permanent? Well, I prove that by how long it took to get to trial and they're still sick. And so is it likely permanent? Yeah, they've been sick for four and a half years. Is it likely to stay permanent? 
We don't know yet, but probably. That gets me to a jury for a lifetime. That's what happened with Miss Jibben. They gave her a lifetime of damages, both wages, medications, building a, an environmentally safe house, and pain and suffering, loss of enjoyment of life. And for those who have to litigate this, have to live it through litigation, when I asked the jury pool in this last case, some things about what were important to them, are your passions important to you? Well, everyone, of course, says yes. What if you could never do your passions again? Is that a big loss? Is that worth a lot of money? That's inestimable. Yeah, but you're the jury, the judge of facts. You have to actually make it estimable. What would it be? It would be a big number. Hence, the big verdict. It's a big verdict when you're caused to lose your ability to do your passions. I even relate it to our country. Here we are in the only country that uses a jury system made by forefathers that wanted life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You may have cut your life short. You've lost your freedom because you're isolated. And can you pursue happiness when you're a prisoner in your own home? That rings a bell for everyone, jurors, judges, and the like, and as patriotic. And so they get motivated to act as judges. It was wrong. It shouldn't have happened. And so that's what we try to do for every one of our, our exposure victim clients that have their world shrunken by this uh, horrible scourge that comes with a lack of care, as Dr. McMahon pointed out. Mold by itself is not bad for you. It's everywhere. It's not until it's metabolically active that it becomes a problem. What makes it metabolically active? Water. Elevated relative humidity without liquid water and your own fluids. There it is, a perfect temperature with moisture. And so those factors make it happen. So what does that mean? If you're in, in a building that has water damage, wasn't properly dried, had enough time to grow and flourish its microbial population to the point of being substantially abnormal, while you have to be there breathing it for hours and hours a day and or night, you now are having an effect that somebody outside is not ever going to get. They're active, but it's totally ventilated. And the spore levels are much lower. That's why we need an environmental test to show how much higher it is than outside. It gives a jury something to hang on that, yeah, even though it's everywhere, it was far worse inside. And it was metabolically active because it was growing. There wouldn't be spores if it wasn't growing. There wouldn't be released chemistries if it wasn't growing. That's just them peeing all over the place you get to enjoy their excretory products, which some of which are mycotoxins for doing their natural battles. But as we pointed out in the last jury, without these fungi, we would be hundreds of meters deep in undecayed organic matter on this planet. If not like Greenland with ice, thousands of meters deep. They are the only things that use their chemistry to destroy the very things we're made of, carbon chains of molecules. That's what they're here for. Their chemistries are incredibly destructive, useful from our perspective in the environment, but very bad for us when indoors. And we have a roof and walls and an HVAC system for one primary thing since we lost having to fight off our invaders, people, to keep water out, to keep us dry, to keep us warm. And if our landlords, our building owners, our contractors who work on air conditioning systems aren't doing that, we got a big problem. And then the last big problem that everyone should get politically active about, every single person, because I'm sure those of us who own homes or businesses bought a liability policy. No one ever talks to you about, oh, by the way, it doesn't cover you for your major liability. Excuse me?
had they said that, would you have said, excuse me, what are you talking about? Well, your most likely event in your ownership is water intrusion. And we'll cover for the water, but we won't cover for the mold. Excuse me? Water dries. Why do I need you if it doesn't cover for the mold? It covers for fire. It'll cover smoke. It'll cover burn. It'll cover even the chemicals from a fire. But it won't cover the things that water causes. And so in Florida, there's a statute for those who do mold remediation that their policy cannot exclude mold. That's their business. Well, how's that different from a landlord? They have to keep under statute a reasonably safe place. Doesn't that include being able to pay for the damage they cause? Shouldn't that be across the board? A homeowner, you have a place, your whole family is getting sick. Your policy doesn't cover the mold that the water costs. And oh, by the way, you called the adjuster on the day the hurricane hit you. They didn't come out for four and a half weeks. The mold started growing at hour 72. Um, how's that my fault? I started suing insurance adjusters for not coming out on time and they'll have to have insurance. I have to find a way to collect for my injured client. But all of these things, the mold and pollution exclusions are very bad law in our system, giving great protection to the insurers. It really doesn't protect those who they insure because I still sue them. And the kinds of cases I take, I just, I just tell them point blank, I hope you have a good insurance because I'm going to take every truck, every piece of furniture, everything in your house, anything I can get to sell because you should have had better insurance. Or you can assign me your rights against your insurance agent and your insurance company for selling you a bogus policy. That's one of the ways I get collected. That's why they don't like me very much. But I'm serious about it. So I, I sue with the intention that there will not be coverage. I'll have to get it. And hopefully we'll get enough outraged businesses and people to go to the insurance company or to the legislatures to require them to cover this kind of loss. It's an absurdity. And, and it's paying a premium for nothing because you almost have no other exposure. Imagine a roofer whose insurer doesn't cover him for mold damage. He's only to protect the roof from water intrusion, for God's sake. But that's what I dealt with with Jividen. He assigned me his policy rights. And so we're going after the insurers now. But there's also lawyers won't look as closely as you'd hope with the language because the adjuster writes... We're not covering it because it's a mold loss. Section such and such and such of the of the insurance policy that's this thick. Well, I looked through it and gee whiz, right at the end of that three-page segment on mold exclusion, it says, however, we will cover molds, fungi, and their chemistries, which were on or in goods and products intended for bodily consumption. What in the world does that mean? It's not defined in the policy. But they don't even tell you when they're rejecting coverage or insurance indemnity or defense. Goods and products intended for bodily consumption. Is food one of those things? It doesn't say it has to be packaged for sale. So I've now pled in every one of my complaints that a substantial portion of the molds and chemistries to which my client has been exposed arose from goods and products intended for bodily consumption. Uh, I think India right now is proof you buy air. I think air is something intended for bodily consumption. And so I include air. The air has the fungi in it. I include food, I include makeup, I include anything that somebody consumes. It won't include furniture, doesn't include carpet, doesn't include the walls of the building. But consumption, I think, means breathing or eating. It's not defined. I'll let a court decide whether I'm right. It will be a court process sooner or later because I think I'm the first one to jump all over this. But uh, there are ways and ambiguity is held in favor of the insurer or the victim. And so... We look for those things as part of what the court process is all about. 
we, we find out what words mean. And usually people are pretty inept at writing words. And so if it's ambiguous, we win. And until they fix it with either getting rid of it or having new language or whatnot to work with, we're good on it until it happens. So you need a lawyer competent to get you through these things of collectability. Because quite frankly, 45 million, I had a, a judgment on a different kind of case for 826 million. The reality is no one covers that much and that bankrupts most insurance companies. So sometimes a big number is not what you really hope for. You, that's great for the press, but you want something that can actually make a difference in the lives of your clients and to be able to make a change for the better in their lives. And it doesn't take tens or hundreds of millions, quite frankly. And not a single dollar of that brings your health back. So the issue is, can we get juries to make, hold accountable and make defendants or their insurers make good on at least bringing them a lifestyle that makes it more safe and more enjoyable for them because no one's bringing their health back. That's what we try to do. Your precedent has really given a lot of hope to people who are facing a world of doctors and researchers and institutes that say, you can't prove it. So thank you for that. Well, if I went on their words, <laughs> there, there was, I'll, I'll give you a quick story if I have the time. I, I once sued on behalf of a family whose husband and father got poisoned by a, a, a pesticide product that Dow made. And I got a phone call from Dow's lawyers in Indianapolis here down in South Florida. And they asked me to come to lunch with them next week. No defendant has ever done that to me before, and I'm usually fighting DuPont, um, but Dow was the manufacturer of this one. So I went to lunch with them, and it was a pleasant lunch, and the nice guys, a bunch of lawyers. I don't really like lawyers very much, never have. I became a lawyer, so I'd never have to hire one. But uh, <laughs> had a nice lunch, never talked about the case till the very end. And then when the check came, he reached for it, and he intentionally held it up to me and said, it's the last dollar you'll ever see from Dow. They came just to take the bill, and say, I'll, I'll never get paid. And, and I thought that was pretty arrogant, quite frankly. So I decided to give them their arrogance back. And because they then followed that up with, so do you plan on withdrawing? And I said, why would I do that? You guys are going to have your butts handed to you. I think I'm allowed to say butts on this, right? And, and they said, well, what makes you think that? We've won this case defense every year for 31 straight years. Bob McKee has never sued you, but he has now. Four and a half years later, they paid that family millions of dollars and the product came out of the marketplace. So they can do what they want, but if they have a real lawyer who believes in his clients as if they're his own family, treats them that way, and has the emotion and the heart to attack and learn and find their weak spot. Uh, I plan on being just like the hyena and the largest animal it could think it could eat because it found one sweet spot, an ankle where it can't get hit and eventually a throat where it can't be pried off. And that's all I need to do. I wanna get them by the throat and pull them down. And I've always said the best witness and expert doesn't have a gun or a giant knife. He has that, eventually they're dead. Just stick them enough times, little ones. That's all we need to do. It would be too graphic there, but the reality is being right consistently with credibility, you'll almost always win with the jury. And put some common sense into it and some commonality of humanity into it. Instead of the jugheads from Harvard and, and Yale, or I shouldn't say that, a bunch of nice guys there too, but most of them are just drawing what their corporate line is. You put heart and personality into it and you, your client is credible, your doctors are credible, 
you almost never will lose. And so that's what we try to accomplish. And everyone can do that. There are lots of good lawyers in this country, but they need the evidence. They need the client who's intelligent enough to know what that evidence should be, or at least to guide them on what that evidence would be. I probably have answered 300 phone calls in the last two weeks from people around the country, and every single one. I need an environmental test, and I need a doctor who's seen them and said, this issue is likely caused by that. You give me that, I'll probably represent you. And, and that's really the key crux. These cases are not inexpensive. I, I'll spend between thirty dollars and $60,000 at a minimum to bring a case to trial, no matter what the illness is. So it should be a significant illness. Will I take sinusitis? Probably not. I, I don't believe that lawyers should be the ones getting the money. I believe that lawyers get their share and the client was compensated fairly uh, by a jury and whatnot. And I know that jury verdict reporters show that sinusitis are a five-figure case. If I'm going to spend a substantial five-figure number to prove it, will the client be getting anything after they pay the costs and the fees? No. They'll just be mad at me. I'd rather give them the money or wish I hadn't taken the case because I can never make that client happy. Um, the, the system requires the expense, expenditure of money. And, and so part of it is an battle from the get-go. But a significantly ill person, a significantly bad property damage is well worth it for a competent lawyer to jump in and, and to, 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 to advise. I, most of the clients I've told, you know, probably by the end of this, you get next to nothing, even though you won with this kind of illness. But if it enlarges, call me back again. I hope you get well really soon, but if it enlarges, call me back. I just can't represent you if I know I'll be the one getting the money by the time you've paid my costs, which isn't even a profit to me, and my fee. And I don't plan on walking away from at least being paid for months or years of work. So that's part of the business side of the lawyering as to whether they're going to take it. That's the reality. These nice ladies have to have a question. That's right. Alicia, start talking. I know I'm usually the one grilling our guests. Since you are one of the few, and, you know, just before I, I start with my question, there were several times where I wanted to cry when you were talking about just what you do. And I think that we are and our listeners appreciate you so much that you are, are real, you're honest, and you are really looking out for the people because to go through mold is, is like the worst thing. And to have someone like you, who is amazing, who is passionate, who knows what this is about, fighting for people every day for this. I mean, you are an angel, honestly. And it, it's kind of a shock to me that with the growing pollution and the growing environmental concerns that we're going through as a nation, as a globe, there aren't more environmental lawyers like you. And it, it's just really interesting. And I just want to know throughout your history, and since you are one of the few going head to head with these major companies, have you been threatened in any way or, or have had any fears of, of going against any of these major corporations? I don't put it in the background of my Zoom shot. <laughs> he has a gun, ladies and gentlemen, and it's quite large. Everywhere I go, my vehicles, my offices, my uh, home, I have more threats than you can possibly imagine. I've had people from South America indicate that they're going to dismember my daughters and send their body parts down Brooklyn, Miami, and I'm not nice in my response. They machine gunned my client, didn't kill him, 
I said, from 400 yards, I can put a projectile into your client's eye. Uh, they better be good shots. But I'm going to your house first, counselor, if that happens. And they never end up killing me uh, yet. I'm knocking on wood. But um, we who fight this have to do it from our own bank accounts. There is no corporate entity paying our ways. It comes at a great deal of travel and risk, financial and otherwise. The corporate America I've dealt with on many different levels, including on behalf of governments, and there's some bad eggs there. They don't normally make their threats known in a trackable way, but you always feel threatened. Um, we've all heard about the aspect of suiciding um, with people that weren't depressed and somehow are found hung in their houses and with a, a note or whatever, but not a single person knew that they were angry or threat, angry or depressed and whatnot, yet at the forefront of many of the holistic medicine doctors, all that kind of stuff. One way to end a case is to get rid of the lawyer. Don't have to get rid of the client, get rid of the lawyer. And so I usually uh, affiliate with more than one law firm on a big case um, so that getting rid of one of us will never get the case over. And my death will be worth a lot to my family. I'm now old enough to want to live forever, but old enough to know I'd rather go quick. So those threats don't bother me as much as they used to. Although I have a three-year-old and a seven-year-old and a 42-year-old daughter and a bunch of grandkids, but um, uh, we travel a lot. We who do this, and there aren't many of us, uh, it's all at our own risk financially. And we're not well-liked. I, I don't plan on harming another human with these, but if they come here to harm me, they're gonna be ruining the day, I hope. Um, but we look out for our clients as family and um, we're not well liked. Uh, I don't mind taking down a defense lawyer for working both sides of the equation between his payer, the insurance company and his client, the one that caused my client's damage and, and offering to sue him on behalf of the client when he's not looking out for the client's interest, but rather the insurer's interest. So because I do that, they don't like me. A matter of fact, I told one guy, uh, represented DuPont, a reasonably nice fellow, but he said, why do you take this so personal? And I said to him, because first of all, my client isn't just my client. My client is my family. My family, I look out for with my own personal safety. When you're making them a victim for a second time through this process, when your client should have at least offered compensation to help rather than sending a you to make them a victim again. Uh, it makes me angry. And it makes me angry enough to say this to you without any problem with having said it even on the record with the court reporter. I hope you and your family suffer a horrible, horrible family tragedy. And then when you try to find justice, you get the same jackass as you are in this case against you. And then you'll know why it's taken personally by me. And if you don't think I mean it? Let's see how this case goes. And they know I mean it. And that's how I fight my cases, with that attitude. Thank you so much. You are you have inspired me. I want to go to law school now and, and intern under you. <laughs> late. I went as a second career. <laughs> you know, lawyers get a lot of credit, but really, there's no credit due until they fight these battles. I, I never wanted to be one. I went so I'd never have to hire one in my own business. And then I got stuck doing a case against DuPont and beat them at trial repeatedly. 
and without ever doing legal research post-graduating post from law school, they made me a main partner in the firm. So I could hire my associate to do my legal research for me. So I just find evidence and tell a true story. And that's my job. So I never really have considered myself a lawyer. I'm a better plant breeder, quite frankly. But I do have passion and I believe in right and wrong. And I believe when you've made someone a victim, you should have to pay the consequences. Not like in China. You know, if you leave the scene of an accident in China, guess what happens to you? You're put to death. It's a capital offense to leave someone to fend for themselves when you harm them. And that's with a car accident or a collapsed building or whatnot. Eh, might be a little extreme, but certainly in our system, those who cause it should have to pay for it. Instead of this business of hiding, stretching it out, making them tired, making them fatigue, embarrassing them, making them a victim again as they simply seek their rights. And so that's what I think a good lawyer is supposed to be for, at least the trial part. Yeah, in China, they've uh, enacted harsh retribution for scientific misconduct. We could use a little bit of that in this country. And architectural is part of it. You, you have a building fall down that kills people, you better be running to another country because you're going to have a bad time. But that's probably a little too extreme. But we need people, such as Alicia, who said I might think about being a lawyer. The reality is people with passion who believe that there is right and wrong and that the ones who caused it should have to pay for it. It's a perfect place to be. It's a very inspiring lifestyle. I, I was just with a client, an old client, that came arose from this case, asked me to come visit her at her really bad oceanfront condo in Miami Beach. And I'm getting sick as I'm standing there. And as I'm about to, after an hour there, about to leave to go on to the next one, and she says, hold it, I need to anoint you. I said, too? I need to anoint you. I can use all the help I can get. So she has me close my eyes and she starts encanting the heavenly spirits, not religious, but the spirits. She anoints my right ear in this incantation as she walks around me for like five minutes with all these things that she wants the spirits to imbue in me and whatnot. And she's crying as she's doing it. And I felt really empowered, let me tell you. Energy transfer is all about life and interpersonal relationships and medicine. Uh, energy medicine is the newest wave, but the energy we share for healing comes from all that we surround ourselves. Shed those who give you bad energy, bring only those who bring you light and positive energy, and you'll live a long, healthy life, I think. Robert, I honestly could not be more honored to have hosted you today. And I've been quiet because I don't want to break out in tears, but I do want to say thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you so much. If I can help you in any way, in any way, just give me a call. My cell phone, oh, this, this is going to be pressed, right? If you want my cell phone number, send me an email. I'll give it to you. And always talk. Talking is enjoyable. And it's sharing energy. Okay? Namaste. Thank you again, everyone. Sorry for the tears, but this, this was probably one of the best guest experiences that we've had. This has gone way above and beyond my expectation. Um, I am so grateful for Robert McKee and his law firm for fighting for people like us. And we need more people like him. So if you guys are contemplating a career change or um, you, your children are going to, into school, find something that is going to help humanity because we are, are, are going into some interesting times here and environmental pollution is ever increasing. And we need to protect ourselves and we need to protect our children and the future generations thereafter. Again, thank you everyone for tuning in today. 
please like, share, comment on our content. Also, feel free to donate to our Patreon and GoFundMe pages below. And we look forward to our next episode. Thanks again, all. Bye-bye. Blessings to all of you. Bye-bye.